Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President-elect Joe Biden scoffs at President Trump's refusal to concede as a quote-unquote embarrassment. Meanwhile, tech stocks lead the market declines after a big rally as COVID roars back in U.S. cities after months of a rural problem lots to get through all-star panel plus it's our executive producer's birthday happy birthday christine i won't eat during the segments a lot to get through as president-elect joe biden said donald trump's refusal to accept the result of the election was an embarrassment that will stain his white house legacy in his first news conference as president-elect he said he was moving forward regardless of republican legal challenges and trump's refusal to allow his administration to cooperate in the smooth transition of power meanwhile uh he says quote i just think it's an embarrassment quite frankly uh he spoke to reporters in wilmington delaware um and i believe our uh Marufo on the soundboard says that he has a Biden thought. Let's take a listen to some of what President-elect Joe Biden told reporters earlier today. The fact that they're not willing to acknowledge we won at this point is uh, not of much consequence in our planning and what we're able to do between now and January 20th. So there you have it. We're going to have much more of this continuing coverage uh, throughout the next hour and a half. But that's the big story tonight. That's the biggest story that we have. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I hit that at the top of the show. Joining me now on another big story is Greg Storr, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter. He is also following uh, the Affordable Care Act court case that uh, started today because Justices Kavanaugh and Roberts signaled that there was an inclination to keep Obamacare alive. Greg, help me make do, because these conservative judges, I wasn't expecting this, were, were others, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Those two justices in particular in the past have indicated, even if they see a constitutional flaw in a statute, they're not inclined to throw out the entire thing. That's the key key issue here in this Obamacare case. Uh, their questions today strongly suggest that they, they view this law like they have viewed other laws in the past, and there will be at least five votes to uphold the core of Obamacare. So what's their, um, what, what, what's their argument? So the argument is basically this, this case is all about that individual mandate that we've been talking about for years. That was the issue at the core of the 2012 fight at the Supreme Court. That's the thing that makes you, uh, that requires people to have insurance. Um, back in 2012, the court upheld that saying it was constitutional because it had a tax penalty uh, attached to it and, and uh, therefore it was within Congress's taxing power. Well, then the Republican Congress uh, took out the, the tax penalty, knocked it down to zero, and the question is, is the individual mandate still constitutional? And if it's not, does that mean the whole law should be struck down? And um, the, the, essentially what Roberts and Kavanaugh said is we have a presumption here 
that we do not throw out an entire statute unless it's abundantly clear that the rest of it can't operate independently without the, the, the provision that's being thrown out. And, uh, you know, they, they suggested that's what we see happening here in, in the Affordable Care Act, and so we're not going to throw out the entire law. Greg Storrs with us. He is Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter. Let's take a listen to what Chief Justice John Roberts had to say about this case earlier today. Here he is. It's hard for you to argue that Congress um, intended the entire act to fall if the mandate were struck down uh, when the same Congress that lowered the penalty to zero uh, did not even try to repeal the rest of the act. Uh, I think, uh, frankly, that they wanted the court to do that, uh, but that's not our job. So, um, Greg, and I, and I say this respectfully, so what's it, it looks like then lawmakers and policymakers won't have to scramble to pass legislation or to fix a policy in case it was struck down. That's right. Um, you know, that's, this a was, big, that's a big deal for, a lot, for millions of Americans all over the country. It, it, it absolutely is a big deal. You know, Obamacare means insurance for about 20 million people. It means that people who have pre-existing conditions uh, are, are protected. It means that uh, these uh, exchanges where you can buy policies are, stay intact. Um, it means that children can stay on their parents' health insurance to the age of, of 26. There are an awful lot of provisions beyond the individual mandate, beyond the thing that was being directly challenged in this case. And uh, it appears that all those will, will remain intact. So specifically as a broader step, and I know this, this might be uh, – I, I want to be blunt here. From a broader standpoint, the fact that Justices Kavanaugh and Roberts have – essentially not struck down uh, Obamacare. It, it, what signal does that send to, to conservatives who might be thinking that this court is going to be tilted heavily conservative for, for decades to come? Because this, to many conservatives, would be a surprise. Well, it's still going to be a very conservative court. Uh, it might just mean that this particular uh, case, this particular argument, just went too far. Um, I don't know that what the court does in this case is anything about what it's going to do on abortion or the Second Amendment or any or, or uh, you know federal administrative law or any other uh, of the many many big issues that are going to come before the court over the next few years. Uh, with Amy Coney Barrett on the court, uh, this is still a very strongly conservative court, and um, yeah, I wouldn't generalize too far just on the based on this one case. Could conservatives? If this is struck down, or if this is maintained, could conservatives bring about another case to challenge the Affordable Care Act? Well, I, I don't want to ever, you know, say never. Um, you know, uh, the cases that have come up to the Supreme Court before tended to be ones that we didn't think were uh, many of us didn't uh, imagine beforehand. But uh, the opponents have proven both creative and resourceful at getting judges to uh, agree with them, uh, at least at least to some degree. So. Um, uh, I, I don't know of any other big challenges in the offing, but that doesn't mean there won't be. So, meanwhile, in addition to that, Greg Storr, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter, uh, there's been a lot of talk about Supreme Court cases relating to the election. What is your reporting gleaned about how SCOTUS is potentially preparing for some legal battles as it relates to the election? And we're going to talk about that, folks, much more coming up later on throughout the program. Right now, the court's trying to is trying to lay low, or that that's the indication. There is this case that's been up there, uh, and there are a couple little skirmishes going on. It, it's the one out of Pennsylvania involving whether the deadline for accepting uh, mail ballots could have been extended was properly extended to, to three days after the election. Uh, the, there is a Republican challenge to that. The thing is, though, that's only you know less than ten thousand votes or so, and these are these are ballots that have not yet been counted. Joe Biden leads uh, at last check by something like forty-five thousand votes in that case. So even if the court were to, to to say that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was wrong to extend that deadline and none of those ballots should count, it wouldn't be anywhere near enough to to overturn the results of the election. So right now, there is no issue that is is close to the Supreme Court that seems like it has the potential. To, to make any difference. Are your sources worried about having to, to have a, a, a 2000 Bush v. Gore scenario? And what I mean by that, are they apprehensive? Do they even want it to get to the Supreme Court? <laughs> well, it depends on which side we're, talk we're talking <laughs> about. But, uh, 
I, I think you know, the people I'm talking to do not expect it to get there. I mean, Bush they before, don't. See, that's huge. And I want to interrupt here because Greg Storr is with us. He's the Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter, the best in the biz. I mean, always ahead and out front. The fact that he just said that, I, I would have bold that, tweet it, underline it, push it out. His sources do not expect that it's going to get to the Supreme Court. Wow. That, I mean, that's – go ahead. I mean, but come, come in here because the president's reelection campaign are saying that they do think it's going to get to the Supreme Court. Uh, and Republicans are thinking that there might be a case all the way up to the Supreme Court. But go ahead. Well, Kevin, the key word in there is it. What is it? What is, exactly. what is the case that is enough to, I don't know. to overturn the, the results of the election? Now, you know, everybody is, is always thinking about 2000 and, and Bush v. Gore, and that was a case where you had one state that made the difference, Florida, and you had a certified result that was 537 votes different. Well, we're talking in all these states both about many, many more votes than that, tens of thousands of, of votes, um, and uh, uh, Donald Trump would have to overturn multiple state results to to uh, to keep the presidency. And there's just no legal case out there right now that has shown to have anything close to the potential to overturn the result in even one state, must, much less uh, multiple states. Greg Storr, you always know how to make an incredibly complicated issue very simple. And what you just said, what is it? I think that's the question that us reporters have been asking and that Republicans even have been asking in my in my world. Uh, the politicians have been asking, what is it? Greg Storer, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter. Thanks so much for stopping in with us. And coming up next, we check in on the economy and COVID. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for fiscal stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President Trump says he won't concede as President-elect Joe Biden scoffs at Trump's refusal to not to not concede as as an embarrassment the latest on the political front plus more from senate majority leader Mitch McConnell who again spoke today on the senate floor all of that as the Affordable Care Act remains intact as uh, two judges, conservative judges, signal that they are willing to keep it. Lots to get through on a very busy news day. President-elect Joe Biden said Donald Trump's refusal to accept the result of the election was an embarrassment that will stain his White House legacy. The president-elect spoke to reporters earlier today in Wilmington, Delaware. Take a listen to what he said. The fact that they're not willing to acknowledge we won at this point is uh, not of much consequence in our planning and what we're able to do between now and January 20th. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, uh, spoke about President Trump's refusal to concede the presidential race as well as to stop. And he said that, that he urged folks to stop making baseless allegations of voting fraud. Take a listen to what he said earlier today. I don't think anything that's occurred so far interrupts an ordinary process of moving through the various steps that I indicated and allowing, if there is a new administration, it to work through the transition 
All of these steps will be taken at the appropriate time. Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, called it inexcusable. What he did yesterday is unprecedented and unforgivable. The notion that the Department of Justice is going to interfere in the election process before the president leaves, uh, to me, is just inexcusable. That comes upon news that Attorney General Bill Barr will someday soon, quote, uh, continue to, to move through the process of the president's allegations. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked about all of this at a briefing earlier today at the State Department. Here's Secretary Pompeo. I'm getting calls from all across the world. These people are watching our election. They understand that we have a legal process. They understand that this takes time. Right? It took us 37-plus days in an election back in 2000. So that's what everyone was talking about through from Wilmington to Washington. Joining us now to talk about the reaction from everyone else inside of the Beltway, Emily Tish, Emily Tish Sussman, host of Your Presidential Playlist podcast, a Democratic strategist, former VP of campaigns for the Center for American Progress, and William McGinley, principal at The Vogel Group, former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Bill McGinley, let me start with you. Does this do anything at all to to shake up the issue of a transition should uh, we get to January 20th? No, I think, you know, in terms of timing, we're still pretty early in the process. Uh, a lot of these states are still going through their initial canvas and completing the counts. Um, as was referenced earlier in some of the segments that you said, it was uh, multiple weeks during 2000, uh, the Florida recount. We're not even at the recount phase here in a lot of these states, um, and we need to see what the final numbers look like. Um, in terms of the transition, um, remember from 2000, it wasn't until December 14th, the day after Al Gore uh, called then-Governor Bush uh, to formally concede. And so the date that I'm focused on is December 8th uh, for the Electoral College. That is the date that the states can uh, do their certificates of ascertainment, which identifies the slate of electors uh, selected from each of the states, where federal law is going to give them the presumption of uh, conclusiveness. So in terms of timing, um, we're still pretty early in the process. The president does have the right to pursue his legal means. Remember, there were recounts going after the uh, 2016 election uh, for weeks and I think almost a month. Um, after the but following Bill, election. Bill, I have so to it's interrupt not here. unusual for them. Bill, in Florida, sure. it was over like 500-plus votes. This is like 10,000 votes, and there isn't a lawsuit or an affidavit that clearly articulates what the position is. And I hear that from Republicans. Totally agree. I mean, I'm hearing from members of Congress. Totally. totally. And Kevin, I agree with you. Okay. Um, what the president's team needs to do now is they need to come forward um, with the evidence that's going to support a legal action that has the potential to overturn the results of the election in one of these states. Um, right now, we've had a lot of lawsuits that have been filed. Um, so far, they've uniformly been dismissed. Uh, but we're waiting to see what the results of the lawsuits that were filed this week. Um, I think, you know, we're going to know pretty soon. And my guess is it's either going to be this week or early next week. Uh, when they've exhausted some of their legal remedies for this stage of the count uh, after the election. Emily T. Sussman's with us. Uh, she, of course, is a Democratic strategist. You know, it, it appears, Emily, that the Biden transition team and the president-elect are, are continuing to move through their processes uh, as it relates to, to the transition. Earlier today, of course, they announced their transitional landing teams, a list of policy advisors for each of the various uh, agencies and departments. But they also are having their lawyers uh, begin to prepare for, for a legal battle. On the one hand... You, they're in a they're between a rock and a hard place. They can't roll over and and allow the legal proceedings and not take them seriously. But on the other hand, they also have to to navigate through a presidential transition. Yeah, I mean it's not that a hard place that they're between, right? Like they can the like Biden President elect Biden, the transition team can keep moving the way they've been preparing over the last couple of months. What they announced today is a, a series of groups of people that are going to examine each 
department and sub-departments and look at what policies they have there, what procedures are there. So basically getting them ready to move forward. The reason that it matters that they are mounting a legal battle against these basically frivolous claims. I mean, my colleague, I, I really appreciate that you're trying to frame this as sort of normal, the Republican challenges, but you, you essentially just describe like plaintiff hunting, like ambulance chasing, right? Like looking for plaintiffs to match the president's claims, which are baseless and they can't find them. But so the reason that it matters and the reason that, that President-elect Biden is trying to, to consider mounting a legal challenge against is because they actually need the GSA, the government, um, the government office, to say the transition can start, to, to allow the government to start so that the people who are currently in the jobs in the government can start talking to the transition team. And that, look, that can be things like national security, like having the president-elect start to begin to get those national security briefings every day, which has traditionally been done. But it also just means things like, what's the password, right? Like, I can just get them started moving so that the day that the new president starts, when President-elect Biden starts on day one, he can hit the ground running. We know there are going to be challenges. I mean, look, he's taking over among the wildest time we can possibly imagine. We all want him to hit the ground running. I think the thing that's been most telling here is that there's tons of reporting out of the White House about how the president really doesn't. It's just not in his nature. He doesn't know how to concede. Um, and so he's looking for claims to match the fact that there must have been fraud and that people uh, just didn't just democratically vote him out. Um, but I think the thing that we should really look to is to see what we're seeing now is who's going to stand behind him. The thing that has been, that has really marked his presidency and the way that Washington has yeah. worked, and quickly, almost more like than anything, is loyalty left. to him. Yeah. Is loyalty to him. And so McConnell's doing it, and who else is going to follow him? We don't know. Well, and, and coming up, we're going to dive into to some of the reporting I did today about the calculations that, that both sides are making here. And, and it really could come down to Georgia. I think Georgia... Georgia's on their mind for, for, for Chuck Schumer and Leader McConnell. I'm Kevin Cirilli. We'll talk about Georgia coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart that means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Georgia. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Georgia. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Georgia's on my mind. Ray Charles, Georgia on my mind. Such a great song. It really does just such a great bop. Georgia runoff elections, January 5th, and a lot at stake. This could actually be the fate of the Senate. It will be. And earlier today, we should note that Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina, was uh, won the North Carolina race, uh, and his challenger, Cal Cunningham, uh, conceded uh, to Senator Tillis. So Republicans inching their way closer to a Republican Senate. But it all comes down to Georgia and the runoff election where Senator David Perdue, the incumbent, is up against John Ossoff, the Democratic challenger, in one election. And then in this other uh, runoff election, Senator Kelly Loeffler is up against Raphael Warnock uh, in that special election for the Senate. 
It's going to be remarkable. And the reason I bring it up is because it does have a lot to do with the conversation here in Washington, D.C. At least that's according to some of the conservative and to some extent Democratic sources that I've been talking with over the last couple of days. What they tell me is that Republicans need the conservative base to turn out the vote in Georgia on January 5th. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell needs the Republican base to show up in Georgia to secure a Republican Senate majority. And as a result of that, this issue uh, with President Trump, the Republicans do not want to do anything to alienate the Republican base in a state like Georgia. And so that's why you've seen Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell really talk about uh, letting the process play out, whatever that process is, quite frankly, many of the Republicans who are raising these issues with me also don't know specifically what President Trump is pointing to when he makes, I guess you could call them allegations, but there there is nothing to even discuss because there's no concrete affidavit or court filing in front of reporters or even lawmakers to discuss this. With that said, I want to welcome back to the program Emily Tish Sussman, who, of course, is a Democratic strategist, and Bill McGinley, principal principal at the Vogel Group and the former deputy counsel at the RNC. Bill, Georgia has a lot at stake here for for uh, Republicans in the Senate. Yes. I mean, Georgia has become the center of the political universe. I mean, at the same time that you're going to have two Senate runoff elections, uh, it looks like you're also going to have a presidential recount. Uh, being conducted in the state at the same time. Uh, the January 5th runoff elections for both seats um, are really going to turn on uh, the, the turnout operations for both parties. Um, Stacey Abrams and everything that she did on the Democratic side, she deserves a lot of credit. They, uh, they increased quite a bit. Uh, but you also need to hand it to the Republicans um, during the, the, the election day, uh, especially in Florida, and it spilled over into Georgia a bit, which was increasing uh, Republican votes, both in the Hispanic and African-American communities um, and working class uh, Americans. I think you're going to see everybody from the Senate who has uh, concluded their elections uh, will be down in Georgia trying to gin up to get out the vote operation, um, including a lot of people from the presidential campaign, uh, both to monitor the uh, recount down there, but also to make sure uh, that the president's supporters are going to turn out uh, for both of these Republican candidates. Emily, Georgia, is Georgia on your mind? Uh, oh, Georgia is on everyone's mind. I really can't. <laughs> I, I love that you started with this song. I couldn't help I, it. I told Marufo yeah. and our executive producer, whose birthday it is, Christine Barada. Happy B-Day, Christine Barada. Uh, I, I said, we got to have Ray Charles. How can you talk about Georgia without playing Ray Charles? Go ahead, Em. I'm getting off you track. You have to have it on. And I also feel like the re- part of the reason the song is so great is that it's hard to underscore, I think, for people who are outside of Washington, how much it is on everyone's mind. <laughs> I mean, from, like, from the difference between the beginning of the Obama administration, the beginning of the Trump administration, to the midterms and what they were able to do has everything to do with who was in control of the Senate, like who was in control of the House and the Senate. And so if Biden is able to go in as the president with a democratically controlled House, a democratically controlled Senate, that is a world of difference than having to negotiate with a Republican-controlled Senate who feel like they, look, this is not new. This is the last couple of years, I'd say, argue even since 2010, since the rise of the Tea Party. But, like, dig in, dig in, dig in, no place for compromise. That is a world of difference. Okay. It's not just about what bills can get passed, but it's also about Senate confirmation. Well, it's totally true. And 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 the type of cabinet, arguably, that... Uh, President-elect Biden can can appoint. Uh, but to this point, and I mean, it, listen, I'm just going to report what the general zeitgeist is in Washington, D.C. It's not an assessment of whether or not I agree with it. But the assessment from Republicans is that they are well positioned to take back the House or to make massive gains in 2022. They feel that they are on the cusp of a resurgence of the economic that forces that drove the Tea Party back in 2008. So, Emily, I mean, I, I, I say this to you. But those same Republicans who are saying that the president not conceding could be a political asset in a January 5th runoff in Georgia, could it also have the reverse effect on the left and motivate people on the progressive left to show up to try to deliver to folks who maybe they're progressive, but they're definitely not democratic socialists. They're not even running as such. Right. Look, people vote because either because one, they're inspired or two, they're afraid. And you know why they vote more? When they're afraid. Wow. And so if people think that they are going to they are going to be faced with 
with the possibility of more Republicans in Congress and the limitation of, of a new President Biden to be able to enact anything that looks like progressive agendas, they are going to turn out and they are going to stay committed. I think that the left immediately was like a little bit excited to start eating our own as we so much love to do. But then I think this <laughs> look, we can't help it. It's in our nature. But I think this refocus on Georgia will actually really um, align the left again on, on priorities. They'll come in here. Seats. They'll come in here. And yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think that the flip side of the fear coin uh, that my colleague just talked about really is a motivator for the Republicans to be the check on a Biden presidency. And so, you know, Right. So in other words, some of the the arguments that you're going to hear down in Georgia on the Republican side is we can't give uh, the federal government over to the Democrats with unchecked power, both in the Senate, the House and the executive branch. We need to have a check. And that check is going to be the United States Senate uh, for all the reasons that my colleague said, whether it's going to be legislation, uh, cabinet confirmations or, or some of the lower level positions, not only the judicial ones. And so, you know, what's interesting is uh, all the reporting that came out of the Democratic House uh, yeah. caucus conference call right. um, and how there was deep divisions between uh, some of the more moderate members and some of the more progressive members uh, in finger pointing as to why they didn't right. do better in uh, right. General Can Election Day. Stay right there because I want to get what's on your radar. I'm going to coin this. It's the political two-point conversion right there down in Georgia. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. This Pfizer vaccination news continuing to reverberate, not just on the policy front, but also on the investor front. Uh, it was above the fold news in the Wall Street Journal, that, as well as Bloomberg.com, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh Headline, quote, clinical trial and election results send stocks on a wild ride. Headline in the FT, COVID vaccine breakthrough brings boost to battered global markets. And all of this comes as Eli Lilly announces that they've got a coronavirus antibody therapy that was granted emergency use authorization in the United States. Earlier today, my colleagues, Tom Keen, Jonathan Farrow, and Lisa Bramowitz caught up with Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks to talk about it. Take a listen. We'll still need medicines like our antibody therapy to help those that will still get sick, hopefully at a much lower rate as we approach something like um, herd immunity, but you'll still have endemic disease and we'll need um, therapies. We ha- There's many examples where this is true, yeah. including common respiratory viruses like RSV. Earlier today, as well, on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg Opinion wrote, and Max Neeson in particular, who covers the pharmaceutical industry for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, he answered questions in a, in a really important column on Bloomberg Opinion. It was a Q&A format about how Pfizer won the most watched race in the world, announcing that its COVID-19 vaccine was more than 90% effective in a large trial. Max, the headline of your piece, did Pfizer play politics with its vaccine news? Some Republicans think the answer is yes, Max. What do we know? Um, I I think that that the answer is no. It's something that there just simply isn't any evidence that there was some sort of political motivation or, or deliberate effort to delay the vaccine results. Uh, the results came at this point because that's when they were ready. Um, there, there's a, a sort of defined way that you look at data for clinical trials like this. It's event-based. So um, actually being able to tell whether the vaccine is effective depends on people in the trial actually getting uh, COVID. So you can compare the placebo arm, the, the inactive arm, to the vaccine and, and see whether it's preventing the virus uh, from in, from causing disease in people. You, you look at the results when there are a certain number of cases. At a certain point, Pfizer decided to skip um, the very first look uh, that it had planned after just 32 cases after talking with the FDA. But that wasn't a political decision. They did that after really widespread public health criticism um, from a lot of experts uh, that, that that was simply too soon, that it risked um, releasing results before they were actually ready, before they were robust, and when there would be more questions about them. So in waiting uh, what, what turned out to be a pretty short period of time, 
they they had a lot more data to look at and results that are a lot easier to trust. So um, not politically motivated and, in fact, uh, a good idea to have waited for a little bit more data. Okay, so when will the vaccine, when can I get the vaccine? Or not me, but when can the, when can people get the vaccine? Uh, so, that, that, I mean, that, that is actually a good way to frame it, because the answer is, is different for you and me than it is for, for some higher risk parts of the population. Um, so any initial emergency authorization uh, could come as soon as uh, this month or early September once Pfizer gets enough safety data, because the FDA requires that, that the company have two months of safety follow-up for most of the participants in the trial. That'll take a little bit. Then they have to review the data and then actually make the decision. But at this point, there are a limited number of doses available. So uh, the early rollout will be for mostly um, older adults, healthcare workers, people at the highest risk categories, and even a limited number of those um, initially and quite possibly into the new year. Uh, Anthony Fauci said today that there may be wide, more widespread vaccination in, in April. Um, that's certainly possible if Pfizer can meet manufacturing targets. If other vaccines succeed as well, um, especially if they, they meet Pfizer's impressive standard uh, for its early results, it, it could push that up. The more vaccines, the better, because you know you can only manufacture so much of, of one vaccine. So the more candidates you have, uh, the more supply you'll have as well. Okay, so I guess like first quarter of next year. And, and Max, I'm not trying to be funny here, but I think that's like the the question that I get as a reporter all the time: is when when will this vaccine be in the market, and where will people get it at their local pharmaceutical where they get their flu shot? What do we know about that? Sure. So I, I would say for widespread vaccination. First quarter is is probably too ambitious. ambitious. Um, It'll probably be. Well, I have a lot of ambition, Max. I'm an ambitious, ambitious guy. You know what? I'd be delighted to be wrong about that, Um, (laughs) either via sped up manufacturing or because multiple candidates succeed. But um, my my expectation is is probably more into the second quarter. And, um, you know, what it'll take is availability in as, as many places as possible because this will be an unprecedented effort in you terms of trying quarter, to vaccinate though. a whole population quickly. You said second quarter, so March. Um, uh, March, April, May, again, Okay, really difficult to this, forecast. Mom, if you're listening, I've been saying this all year. I said, get me to March, Mom. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> That's been my mantra. I've got signs in my place. i got a sign on my desk here at the, at the bureau where it's empty every day. I told Craig Gordon, I said, it was like normal last week, and all the editors were here, and it was like a busy newsroom again. Now they're all gone, and we're alone again. But, um... But but seriously, I've been saying March. That's been my mantra. Get to March, Kev. Get to March. So, I mean, Max Neeson, who knows everything about the pharmaceutical industry, is saying as early as March. Okay, let me ask this. Are the scientists doing data, Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers pharmaceuticals, are they doing data on – and I don't know the technical way to ask this question – but are they doing data on once the first round is in the population, so once the, the high-risk groups – Will that make an impact on being able to lift some of the socially distant restrictions? Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, I do. And and as much as I'd like to say yes, uh, at this point, I'm going to have to say no. It's okay. going to take social distancing measures probably well beyond the second quarter, um, even when you have widespread vaccination beginning. Because widespread vaccination doesn't mean that everyone has access, they'll get it, it's done. You actually have to roll it out, distribute it. It'll be, um, you know, limited for a while, and then you actually have to get people on board. That's the whole process. It also takes almost a month to get both shots of the two-dose vaccine. So um, you're not actually protected right away. Uh, And then also there there are unknowns about uh, the details of the vaccine data. Don't know, for example, whether it prevents asymptomatic transmission whether it prevents infection outright. We only have this really limited bit of information, which is that it prevented over 90% of symptomatic cases um, in, in a relatively short time period. So caution is warranted for, for some time to come. Okay, so it's a two-shot vaccine. We don't know if it prevents asymptomatic. Now, the other question I had was, are you, does it, how long does it last for? 
Um, unfortunately, we have no idea. Um, and that's something that will take a long time. Now I know why you're emerge. not that optimistic. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's just something you can only figure out through real world observation over a long time period. There, there's some reason to be optimistic. Often vaccine acquired immunity is, you know, both stronger and more durable than, than naturally acquired immunity. But you, you really can't know about a specific disease or a specific vaccine uh, until you, you see that data. So it's something to be cautious about. I mean, it's entirely possible this will end up needing to be um, a seasonal vaccine, like a much shot. in the way that yeah. the flu vaccine is. Max, do me a favor. Keep writing these Q and A's because I, I read this on the Bloomberg Terminal today, and and it's it's so good, it's so smart, and it answers all of my questions. And I and it's I think so many people have, and I say this, you know, just as someone who just wants to know about the vaccine. He, Max writes in a way that it makes it very easy to understand. Max Neeson, thank you so much for jumping on the line for us to to break all of this down from a consumer standpoint. You know, it's one thing to talk about it from the markets, but of course, from a consumer standpoint and an everyday applicable standpoint. Thank you, Max. Much more coming up next. What's on the panel's radar? You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. To avid listeners of the program, you always hear me talking about how our executive producer, Christine Barada, always keeps me focused. <laughs> Most days keeps me focused uh, on the program. And it's her birthday today, so I wanted to wish... A very, very, very happy birthday to my friend and our hard working is an understatement. I mean, really, folks, no one works harder and is more talented uh, than Christine Barada. And it's her birthday today. And if if you've listened to the program or our guests who uh, are regulars, please make sure that you wish the Christine Barada, who runs Washington behind the scenes, uh, because it is her birthday today and she deserves to have the best birthday ever. Um, and I was, I was trying to think when we first started working together, I thought, oh, she's from Boston. She must be a Tom Brady fan. Back when, you know, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, remember them? Uh, was on the Patriots. She doesn't even like the Patriots. I said I can work with this. Then I find out that she loves reality television, just like me. I can go deep on some reality TV uh, seasons like you wouldn't believe. Uh, and she's she always makes sure that I talk about that, but never on air. <laughs> so thank you to Christine Barada. Happy birthday, my friend. Happy birthday to Christine Barada. All right. Uh, now it's time for my favorite part of the program, <laughs> which is what is on the panel's radar. Emily Tish Sussman's with us, the host of Your Presidential Playlist podcast, a Democratic strategist, former VP of campaigns for the Center for American Progress, Bill McGinley, William McGinley, Bill Principal at the Vogel Group, former White House Cabinet Secretary and former Deputy Counsel at the Republican National Committee. Are either of you Scorpios like me and Barada? Nah. I see all the way. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Did you say Pisces all the way? All the way. I appreciate that, Bill. Emily? No, no, Taurus. All right. All right. Not that I even understand any of that, but I do know I'm a Scorpio. Okay. Uh, What's on your radar, Emily? 
Well, now that we're talking about reality TV, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that now we- or around now is the Real Housewives of Salt Lake premiere. And yeah, I really, nothing's got me more excited. Tomorrow. Ugh, I, I can't watch on the actual days because I have too many young kids. But <laughs> I am super, super psyched about this movie, okay. Real Housewives franchise. What is on your political policy radar to bring it back before Barada gets in my ear to tell me to get back on track? Go ahead, Em! <laughs> Political policy was actually, um, I would say, who's being announced, who's on the Biden, the president-elect Biden task force, and who's not being announced. I think the people who are not on the task forces are the ones that are probably being vetted right now for cabinet-level positions or, this like, number smart. two, number three. This is smart. So for folks who don't know what these presidential landing team squads are, tell us, let's spend, let's spend a minute on this. Tell us what they are and tell us, give us some names as to who stood out and who's not on it. So the positions that are being described right now, these groups, um, are the functional groups that are going to work with different uh, different positions within the executive branch, so under the presidency. So, you know, there's one group that's going to work with health care, with HHS, one group that's going to work with Treasury, with the Treasury Department, with Commerce. Um, and so the groups that are announced are going to really be looking through every regulation, every policy, every position, thinking about do they continue it, do they reorganize it, where are their, where are their points they can think about exercising policy positions. Um, and so the people that are on it, they put together a pretty broad coalition of people that are from government, from think tanks, from business, from advocacy. Like, it's a very broad coalition of people that are on it. It's not a lot of big, bold names of the people that are being floated around um, as the idea of people, people being, like, at the top. So, you know, we're not seeing, in defense, we're not seeing Michelle Flournoy on that list. In foreign policy, we're not seeing Tony Blinken on that list. Like, the fact that those are left off says me that they're probably in the vetting process for something big. Yeah, that's smart. That's a really smart assessment there. Um, uh, that's really smart. Okay, Bill McGinley, what's on your radar? All right, since we're doing reality TV shows, I do have to call out, I think it's a game of honor, which was a, a special about the uh, Army-Navy game and behind yes. the scenes and what the midshipmen. Yes. Unbelievable show. Yes. Okay. Great show. I'm binging that this weekend. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, gosh, I'm yes. getting so off topic, uh, but I, I, I'm I, agreeing with both of you. This is classic. I okay, go ahead. <laughs> and I'm going to go with the ultimate kitchen table uh, issue that a lot of moms and dads are struggling with right now, School. and that is whether – um, high school athletics will return in the spring semester. Um, a yeah. lot of schools started out virtual, went hybrid. Uh, with some of the spikes uh, for athletics, they announced that they were going to try and squeeze uh, both the fall, all the, the fall, the winter, and the spring seasons into the spring semester. And so it's going to be uh, interesting to watch to see whether they're going to be able to pull that off. Families across our region are talking about it all the time. Uh, everyone's talking about it, and and I and I still get back to this issue of childcare for preschools and whatnot. I mean, if if a, if a teacher or someone's exposed and what that does to folks and the pressure that that puts on families to get back to work, I mean, it is so so incredibly confusing. Do you think, Bill McGinley, that there's a role for local government officials or school board officials to play in these types of conversations? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think when you when you talk to the families and everybody who's impacted by these decisions, you know, the common themes that you hear are, number one, the pandemic in a way has been a blessing because parents are spending more time with their children. Uh, but in a way, the setback is, is that the kids aren't getting the socialization with their yeah. classmates and the athletics that they need. And the local government's got to step up uh, and try and figure out a way to not only keep them safe, but to get them out there uh, with physical activity and in-class learning to the extent that they can do it safely. Socialization is so important. Yeah, and it's just just totally, totally uh, been an impact on on every family. Um, Okay, here's what's on my radar. I want to end with some optimism. Um, Earlier this month, I spoke with Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. He's the chairman on the Homeland Security Committee. And I did this interview, I want to say like two weeks ago, we filmed it in the Homeland Security Committee hearing room because I did it for in partnership with the September 11th Memorials Annual Summit on Security. They put on this annual summit um, every year where they talk about security and cybersecurity and it rolled out today for the museum, and I was incredibly, incredibly grateful and humbled that they asked me to participate in this. But when I was preparing for the interview, I had some fascinating conversations uh, with uh, one of the top officials over there at the museum. 
And we came up with this final question that I wanted to ask because it really struck us that there is an entire generation that was not born um, until after 9-11. And so how do we as Americans remember and honor and tell the story of 9-11 to generations that were not born uh, at that particular time? Because really the heroism of humility and uh, of patriotism uh, on 9-11 and on really that September 12th feeling, for lack of a better phrase, that September 12th feeling that we all remember, right? Bono and the flag on the, on the, on the inside of the arm jacket uh, at the Super Bowl halftime show, acts like that, Rudy and the Bullhorn and whatnot. Um, how do we serve as a bridge for generations born after 9-11 to keep the legacy alive? I asked that to the chairman. Here's what he told me. Well, we don't bury it. Um, there are horrific images from 9-11, but, you know, reality is something that we all need to face. Now, you have to take into consideration people's age and exactly what they experienced, but we can't ever let America forget. And part of that is we have to let those that weren't uh, old enough or those that weren't even born, we, we need to educate them in terms of what happened, too. What, the world's a dangerous place. Uh, but we can also educate them in terms of how we do come together as a nation. You know, how we are one people with that shared goals. And that's, that's where we left it. My thanks to the 9-11 Memorial and to the museum for all of their hard work, as well as to you for listening. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.